morning. Um, if you've got your Bible uh, or an app, head for John chapter 7. I'm going to pick up right where Pastor Drew left off. And uh, just uh, I just want to take a quick read through this text um, before we say anything else about it. Um, you'll remember from last week that Jesus went to the Feast of Booths. And uh, the Feast of Booths is a commemoration that was commanded by God for the children of Israel, and it was to remember God's faithfulness in leading them through the wilderness. And any time they had a need, and they're going, oh God, you delivered us from Egypt, and now we're all going to die. And he would just be patient and manifest his kindness, giving water from a rock and bread from heaven to meet all their needs. And just at every turn, whether it was danger from enemies or lack of material sustenance, anything they needed, he provided. And so that now, thank you, Ken. As they're established in their own land, they're supposed to be remembering who God is based on who he has been. So they gather once a year to celebrate, look at who this God is. Look at how faithful, look at how present, look at how attentive to all of our needs. And so that, that's, that's the context. We're still there. When we get down to verse 25, it says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? I love this. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the, excuse me, to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, 
the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the, or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who is one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I want to remind you that John's stated purpose in writing this book is to establish the reader's faith in Jesus. In the second half of John 7, we see five responses to Jesus as different classes of people interact with him and hear his words. Today, when you hear the words of Jesus, you will be drawn to put more confidence in him, more confidence than you've ever had before. I hope that your response to Jesus will be one of growing faith and that you will leave encouraged but it may be that you will recognize yourself in one of these less favorable responses to Jesus. So I'd like to pray over you before we dive into the study portion. Lord Jesus, I pray that your words would have your power and affect the changes that you intend in each of us who sit here listening. Lord, that our faith, our confidence, our trust, our dependence, our affection would more than ever be in you. Be exalted through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first class of people that we see hearing Jesus' words and responding to them are the common people. Um, verses 25 through 27, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And I think it's funny because a little bit earlier, um, let's see. Yeah, verse 19. Jesus asks, why do you seek to kill me? 
And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? So there, they're kind of contradicting him and saying, no, nah, nobody's trying to kill you. You're paranoid. And now, oh yeah, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? <laughs> Short memory. Um, then they continue. Here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Pause. When you hear this word Christ, I, I hope to build into you this association. Remember Isaiah 61. We've been over this several times, right? How many have it memorized? Kind of, kind of, sort of? I want to take you there just for a minute. Just, I want to remind you of what the people should have been expecting because Christ means anointed one, right? Listen to this. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What an expectation. What a, what a personage to wait for. And they were waiting. And if that's what you expected, you should have recognized it looking at Jesus. You should have recognized this anointing on him because he absolutely carried it. And by the way, he read this very passage in the synagogue and said, Today, in your hearing, these words are fulfilled. So it's right for them to wonder, can it really be that the authorities know that this is that anointed one? But then... They start asking questions. Is it okay to ask questions? Depends. It depends on where the questions lead you. If your questions lead you to put your allegiance, your confidence, your faith in Jesus, then it's a good question. And if your questions keep you from coming from him, that's a bad question. So, Verse 27, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Where did they get that idea from? I'll tell you, I don't know. I looked this week for any scripture that would give this indication that it's a mystery where Christ comes from, and I came up dry. I, I couldn't find anything that says that. I read a commentary that says this was just oral tradition, that that the coming of the Christ would be so shrouded in mystery, he'd be this mystery man from who knows where. It was just a tradition. But they'd heard that. And don't you know that when you grow up in a religious setting, that the things that you hear, whether from the Bible or not from the Bible, all kind of flow together? And these people had had this experience. They'd heard biblical tradition and other tradition, and it was all kind of swirling together, and they didn't know how to pick between them. 
we better know better. We better know better what God says and what just men say. So these people are divided. Some think maybe this is the Christ, the anointed one of God. And others are like, no, I, I think we've got some information that doesn't quite fit, so let's, I don't know, let's keep our distance. So you can trust what you think you know and give up on Jesus, or you can trust what you know you see, even if it doesn't make perfect sense. I would encourage you toward that response to Jesus. Will he fit your box perfectly? Probably not. He's probably going to break your box. But there are certain marks that you should look for, and I'll say more about that hereafter. And because he is that, you should put all your confidence in this anointed one. Um, verse 31. Many of the people believed in him. What he said and what he did is enough. And many of the people came to that conclusion. It's enough. This is the one we're looking for. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? He did enough. Verse 41. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? You know, I have friends and family members who look at Jesus and they're like, yeah, I mean, he did die on the cross and he was a really good man and a good teacher and a prophet, but there's all these prophecies that, like Isaiah 9 where it says, of his kingdom and of the increase of peace there will be no end, and look at the world, that is not happening failing to recognize that there's a first coming of Christ and a second coming of Christ when the rest of the prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled will indeed be fulfilled. So what, what's happening with questioning and failing to come to Jesus in Jesus' generation is still happening today. Don't let it happen to you. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. That's verse 40. Do you believe? Is this the one who speaks for God and is anointed by God? Don't let anything keep you from faith in Jesus. Now let's talk about the Pharisees. We talked about the crowd. They had a divided response. Some believed, and some took a line of questioning that kept them from faith. The Pharisees give at least an attempted picture of solidarity. We are all one way. We all say to you, if you knew the Bible, you wouldn't trust Jesus. Ow. That's hard. But don't you know this morning that just knowing the Bible 
won't necessarily put you in relationship with Christ in a manner that saves you. I was talking yesterday about a Greek scholar who I'm aware of. He was roommates with a friend of mine at Wheaton College, and now he's got a big name, been on talk shows and all that, because he's so in touch with textual criticism, all the problems in the biblical texts. He's lost his faith, doesn't even call himself a Christian anymore, and he could quote Scripture better than any of us here. Just knowing the Bible won't save you. You have to respond to who Jesus revealed himself to be with faith. That's what saves you. So here's Pharisees. You talk about people that know the Bible. These guys know the Bible. Verse 30. They were seeking to arrest him. There's kind of this theme. That word seeking is repeated over and over and over again in John chapter 7. Are you seeking Jesus this morning? For what? Are, are you seeking to honor him? Are you seeking to see him as he truly is? Or are you seeking to stop him or kill him or arrest him? There are multiple possible responses to seeing Jesus, and these people who were in charge, who were Bible experts, had whatever the opposite response of faith is. Verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I was curious when I saw that word hour, if that was the same kairos, um, from verse 8. <clears throat> I'm not going up to this feast for my time. That's kairos. My appointed time has not yet fully come. It would seem fitting to me that it would say in the commentary here that the appointed time for Jesus to be arrested and killed had not yet come. But it was, it's actually just tronos here. So I was kind of thinking about... I wouldn't probably even bring Kairos and Kronos in here, but that's kind of part of our discipleship program that we run here. We talk about this in the learning circle, right? You're going chronologically, Kronos, through your life, and then God appoints a time at which you're going to grow more into the likeness of Christ and, and more away from the old fleshly habits that you used to have. A time appointed so I was thinking about that and thinking that would have been a perfect time to write Kairos. And he didn't. He wrote Tronos. So is God in charge of all the Kairos moments in our lives, the, the times when he interrupts our schedule in order to make us more like Jesus? Absolutely he's in charge. And he's also in charge of the chronology. He's also in, time of the, in charge of the moments that we think nothing of that lead us from one place to the places that we count noteworthy, the appointed moments to become more like Jesus. He, he's in charge of all of it. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things. Maybe he's the Christ, but we have questions. Muttering these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. 
And then verses 35 and 36, the Jews said to one another, pause, when it says Jews, who are we talking about here? Because pretty much everyone that you see in the Gospel of John is Jewish. And there's been a lot of anti-Semitism based on misunderstanding here. Oh yeah, yeah, the Jews are the bad guys. They're the ones who crucified Christ. They were saying this in Nazi Germany in World War II, right? When it says Jews, John himself is a Jew. The guy writing the book. He doesn't mean Jews in general like Jews are bad guys. That's not what's being communicated here. Jews is shorthand for the rulers of the Jews. That's really who he's talking about because the whole crowd, they're Jews too. Different category of people. The Jews, meaning the rulers of the Jews, said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the the Greeks to teach the Greeks? Why would that keep the Jewish leadership from finding Jesus? Because they were bigots. No, going among the Greeks, that would be defiling you. Those are like people that offer pigs in worship to their idols. We, We would be ceremonially unclean if we went there. So if he went there, we certainly wouldn't. Is that what he means? Not what he means at all. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? I would submit to you that where Jesus is at that present time is in fellowship with God, the Father. And they can't come there because they won't come to him in faith. So they misunderstand. Verse 47. The Pharisees answered the officers who'd been sent to arrest Jesus, have you also been deceived? So part of this whole picture is pouring derision on those who are drawn to Jesus. Does that happen? Yeah, the the public image of Christianity is we're a frail, failing movement. And at the best, we're deceived. And at the worst, we're dangerous. That's, that's the mainstream image of us who follow Jesus, of us who have devoted our lives to him. So this is a little bit off topic, but are you willing to take all those labels? Are you willing to have abuse heaped on you because you're associated with him? It's a... You have to have an answer to that question because it's not going to get easier in your lifetime. It's not going to get easier this side of heaven. But let me tell you this, it's an honor to be associated with Jesus. And it's an honor to suffer dishonor for the sake of his name. So I just want you to settle your mind right now. This is going to happen. 
and just decide right now, I'm willing to receive that honor if I can be associated with Jesus. Verse 48, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Now, we learn a little bit further down that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And he's chosen. He's chosen within himself, this is the Christ, and I've put my faith in him. And he takes some heat for it, doesn't he? But they like to present a unified front. Oh yeah, none of the scientists believe in this Jesus. Nobody with any analytical thought process has put their faith in this fool. That's, you'll get that from the world. Is it the case? Or is it just a front? It's just a front. If you knew the truth about scientists, you would know that a bunch of them, a bunch, just by observing what's been created, have gone, this is no accident. This is the product of an intelligence. And that line of thinking will lead you to the Creator if you let it. And lead you to His Son if you let it. So it's just a front. When people say no intelligent person believes in your Jesus, it's a lie. I'm looking at some intelligent people. <laughs> Verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. What problem did they have with the crowd? They're kicking around the idea that Jesus may be the Christ. If you guys just knew your Bibles better. <laughs> Do you remember what Jesus said back in chapter 5? You search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they that testify of me. So, you can throw that right back at the Pharisees. If you only knew your Bibles better, and Jesus talked to them that way, they try to trip him up with this hypothetical scenario where a woman is married to seven men and they all die, so whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said, if you knew the Scriptures and the power of God, It gets worse. Verse 52, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Some of the commentators that I read identify six or seven of the prophets who were from Galilee. I know for sure that Jonah, remember a couple weeks ago when Pastor Drew preached on Jonah? Jonah was from Galilee. Absolutely no question about it. No matter where you draw the boundary lines, he was from Galilee. And I'm just going to guess that as experts of the law, that they knew this. They were experts in mining all the inconsequential details and knowing them by heart. 
He knew absolutely that Jonah was from Galilee. Just gambling that nobody else that they were trying to make feel bad would know this. That's dirty. So what's the Pharisees' response to Jesus? They're adversaries. And they should have known better. They should have known better because they knew the word that testified of Jesus. What about the soldiers? Third response. There's less to say here. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Just doing their job. You can't blame an officer for going to arrest someone when they were ordered to arrest him, right? So far, no guilt. Verse 45, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? They come back empty-handed. Somebody's in trouble. You get ordered to do a job and come back and the job isn't done, of course you're going to get in trouble. They had to have known this. Verse 46, the officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. Don't you love that? Those sent to arrest Jesus were arrested by his words, kept from doing what they came to do, kept from doing their job because they were so impressed with the way that he spoke. And that's exactly the way that Jesus wants to be believed. He would rather be believed for his words than for his works. We saw that in John 4. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, that's chapter 3, right? Nicodemus, who is one of them, a Pharisee, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Hey, you want to start the wheels of justice moving? Let's be just. It's fair, right? I wonder if Nicodemus thought, if my fellow Pharisees could hear this man, if they could just hear his words, maybe faith would spring up in them. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the words of Christ, right? So, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, so much for solidarity. They're not all together in deciding that Jesus is a fake. He seeks for the antagonists to reconsider. You know, this could be you with your coworkers. You are one of a group of people who don't all believe in Jesus. Me too. Even if it's just your family, you are part of a group of people who don't all believe in Jesus. And you have the opportunity as one sent by Jesus to try to change their minds and get them to listen to him. You know, there's mockery on this road. It's not all nice because you're following Jesus 
who spoke the truth at all times and was killed for it. That's only four, but I want to read you the words of Jesus next because they're the best. He's the object of your faith, the one that you trust, the one that you put all your confidence in because you heard him speak. Yeah, you see him act too, but, but mostly you heard him speak. And you were arrested, you were captured, you were... It's the reason why you belong to him now. He gives reasons to believe in himself. Verses 28 and 29. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So, here's a couple of reasons to believe in Jesus. He knows God, and God sent him. Verse 33, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Here's another reason to believe in Jesus. He's going back to God, and guess what? Now he has. He has gone back to God. You know what he's doing there? Praying for you. Praying for me. I need that. Hmm. You will seek me and you will not find me. Didn't he say just a little bit of before, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be opened unto you. For I say to you that everyone who asks receives. Everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. How then will they seek Jesus and not find him? Because he's speaking to the Pharisees and saying, you're seeking to arrest me and you're seeking to kill me, and that's not going to happen. Well, wait, you might say. But they do catch up with him and crucify him. Yeah, they do. But Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I have authority for my father to lay it down, and I have authority for my father to take it up again. They didn't catch up with him because they were so clever or persistent. They caught up with him because he decided it was time to give up his life. Now, this is my favorite part. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What an invitation. Come to me. Are you thirsty? Come. What was the problem with the Pharisees? Not thirsty. 
satisfied with the Scriptures, but missing the point. So, he says to the common people, aren't you thirsty? Come to the Pharisees. Look at yourself. Aren't you thirsty? Come to the soldiers. Aren't you thirsty? To Nicodemus, you were thirsty and you came. How's that worked for you? I want to remind you again of the woman at the well from John 4. Because Jesus' whole interaction with her revolved around this idea of thirst. He said to her, Lady, you've had five husbands. And why do you suppose she had five husbands? Because she was thirsty. If you knew who it was who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. It's the same invitation again, but not just to one, to a crowd. Aren't you thirsty? All the other things that you pursued that you thought would satisfy, and you come up dry. Wouldn't you like to be satisfied? Come to me. Come to me, Jesus says, and I'll fill you up. Whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, wherever you've sought for satisfaction and come up dry, come now to Jesus. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You could be satisfied, and you could be a satisfier of the thirst of other people because that's how a river is. It's uncontainable. If you were thirsty and there was a river flowing out from you, you wouldn't be thirsty anymore. And probably the people all around you would also be satisfied and no longer thirsty. It's a good vision, isn't it? That's only been four perspectives. I promised you five. But I didn't think that I could do the fifth one without zeroing in on Jesus. The fifth perspective is one who has drunk of the living water that came from within him. One who devoted his life to satisfying the thirst of others. John, the writer, kind of an outside perspective because he's writing long after the events that he's recording. Verse 39, this is John's commentary. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That one gave me trouble. Not because I couldn't sense the glory on it, but because I was having trouble understanding this. What in the world does Jesus not yet having been glorified have to do with the Spirit not yet having been given? I think we need to know. Because in my mind, Jesus being glorified is all about going to heaven again. 
Isn't that where glory is kind of focused? Why does Jesus have to go there before the Spirit comes here? I mean, he said something like this. You say I'm leaving and you're sorry, but if you realized the benefit to you, you'd be happy. It's absolutely necessary for your good that I leave because until I leave, the Spirit won't come. Why? (laughs) The last time I talked about that here, I determined that it was because he wants us to relate to him by faith. And the risen Christ, yeah, I mean, Thomas needed to put his faith in him and he, he had trouble with that. But Jesus said to him, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe, although they've not seen. That blessing is for you and me. And so Jesus needed to leave bodily so that the Spirit would be received by faith. If if you're taking notes, Galatians 3, 13, and 14 will back me up on this. But I want to move a step further this morning. That's what I said earlier. And I want to suggest to you that glorified may refer to the cross. And I have a good reason for believing that. Not just the cross, but the cross and the grave and the resurrection and the ascension, that all that is Jesus manifesting his glory. And that all that was a necessary predecessor to us receiving the Spirit. So here's the idea. The Holy Spirit doesn't just rest on you. He takes up residence in you. And that's part of the goodness of this good message. Is that Jesus himself by the Spirit should inhabit you. Not having Jesus inhabiting you is what leaves you thirsty. So the the fountains of living living water from your inmost being, that's what it looks like to be full of the Spirit, to have him in and overflowing out, that full. So how in the world would you get ready to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I would say to you this morning that you must be cleansed before you can be filled. Jesus had to go to the cross and bear our sins in order for us to be cleansed. And so the whole gospel message of Jesus bearing our penalty on the cross and taking our sins to the grave and rising again because death couldn't hold him because he himself was sinless and then ascending to the Father, that that whole thing is Jesus being glorified. And it had to happen before the Spirit was given. Because if all Jesus does is bears our sins to the grave and he's not raised again, we're tempted to think, just like the disciples thought before the resurrection, he was just a really, really, really good man. And we're so broken that he died. Period. That's all you've got without the resurrection. With the resurrection, this truly was the Son of God. 
L let me just move you forward just for a minute to underscore with John's writing this idea that maybe Jesus is connecting this glorification to his death. John 12, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. What things were done to him? That's the cross. Verse 23 and 24. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's he talking about? He's facing the cross. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's, talk, he's connecting glory in the cross. And that's what had to happen before we could be filled with the Spirit. All right. I could say more on that, but time is gone. So here's the conclusion. I, I'm going to ask something from you this morning. I want perfect honesty. I want perfect honesty from you as I ask this first question. If you are currently satisfied by the Spirit. You are not thirsty because you have the rivers of water coming from your inmost self. You are satisfied and you are satisfying the thirst of others. I want you to stand up because I need your help. All right. I'd hoped for more, but that's okay. Do you believe this morning that Jesus wants to satisfy you with himself? Maybe you're just a regular person with questions, but faith is stirring in you. If you're thirsty this morning, Jesus invites you to come and drink. Come and be satisfied by a river more than what you need. Maybe you're something of a Bible expert, but your heart has grown hard. If you're thirsty this morning, Jesus invites you to come and be satisfied by him. Jesus has been glorified. He went to the cross. He went to the grave. He went to heaven. He gave himself up to be nailed to a cross, bearing our sin and shame. This cleansing makes you eligible to be filled by the Spirit. Filled and satisfied. Satisfied and satisfying the thirst of others. Robert, can you play something? I should have asked earlier, but uh, I got caught up.
I don't have any other fancy finish. If you're thirsty, come and be filled. You may not need to pray with anyone in particular. You may just need to seek God. Because I don't have anything magic, but I know someone who satisfies. And I'm inviting you to come to him. Because you're all still sitting there, I assume that you're all thirsty. And so I invite you to lay aside your pride and come to him who satisfies. Come. Receive of the living water. Father, I thank you for this gathered people. I thank you for your good word. And I pray that you would pour out on them, in them, through them, this river of water, living water that you promised. Jesus, I thank you for the glory of your cross. I thank you for the glory of of your short time in the grave and your resurrection and your ascension back to heaven. And Jesus, I pray that you would be pleased as the one anointed of God to baptize people with your spirit, to pour out that gift without measure on this thirsty company. Be exalted in this, Jesus. Jesus.